the God of all conquering love in prayer right now, please. Father, we come to you, come rejoicing, even in the midst of our situations in life and many here in some really difficult situations in life. Don't want to negate those at all. But in the midst of each one of those, those that are bought and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ are locked up in your love. And I'm asking you to help them sense and feel that, that what is absolutely true would be personally experienced and they would enjoy just basking in the sense of your love. Your word tells us that Precious are your thoughts, God, toward your children. Thank you for that. So, Lord, we, we come to you. We come to you as the omnipotent God, as the God who has all and can do all. And we bring our request to you along with our worship. Ask that you would, according to your infinite and complete knowledge that you would meet our needs in ways that would bring you glory. Praying for strength for those that are in the valley, light for those that are in the darkness, joy for those that are in the sorrow, peace for those that are in the storm. Lift up their hearts and their heads this morning with the fact of your great love and the great work that your grace has done through Jesus Christ, your Son, in saving us. And Lord, if there are those here this morning that are not saved, that have not come into experience the grace of God freely available through the person and sacrifice of Christ, that you would open up their hearts and their minds to see and believe that truth about Christ today. Give them faith to believe. Work in them both to will and to act according to your good purpose. For your glory and Christ's name. And Lord, I do I thank you for our veterans. Grateful for those who sacrificed so greatly. Many, Lord, the ultimate price of their life. Families that experienced great sacrifice through the service of their loved one. Thank you for the freedom that we stand upon today right here. Those that are currently serving, Lord, protect them, reunite them to their loved ones. Help them to sense your 
your presence this week. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Romans chapter 6. You open up there and put your finger in your Bible. We are in the midst of a study, an extended study over the past many weeks about a great doctrine. Let me just remind you of what that doctrine is. It is the doctrine of the believer's union with the Lord Jesus Christ. A union that was accomplished at salvation, at the moment of salvation. A union that was accomplished fully and completely. Paul referred to that in the first part of Romans chapter 6, that when we put our faith in Christ, that the believer is baptized into the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that baptism, there is a real union that takes place. And we have been talking, as Paul has been talking over and over again, about this great doctrine. We're going to continue to talk about that today. We've come to Romans chapter 6, verse 8. And we're going to walk through verses 8, 9, and 10 today as we continue to unpack, continue to look at from a multifaceted way this great doctrine of the believer's union with Christ. Let me remind you of the outline here. Romans chapter 6, verse 5, Paul makes a a statement, he gives a sentence there that's a compound sentence that has two ideas to it. There's an idea in the first half of Romans 6, 5, and in the last half of that verse, there's another truth. Both of them related to our, the believer's union with Christ, but what he does is he takes the first half of Romans 6, 5, the first part of that statement, and he expounds upon it in verses 6 and 7. And then once he is finished with that exposition, then he comes to verse 8, 9, and 10, and he expounds upon the second part of Romans 6, 5, a second great statement of truth about our union with Christ. So let's pick it up in verse 8. Here is what Paul writes, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Now, truth, if you are relatively new here and uh, have not been a part of just the normal process of, of my preaching style, just I'm wanting to reinforce this here. The truth that we study is made up of specific words, and those words carry specific meanings. And it's really critical in exposing or unleashing the truth of a text to make sure that we know what the words mean and the phrases mean that are there because what they mean points to the truth that they hold and the truth that's there is what is liberating and freeing and transforming. So we need to be really careful and diligent about making sure that we are properly interpreting the specific words that are used, phrases that are here. And so we're going to do that 
this morning we're going to look pretty closely and deeply at some phrases and statements, the first one of those being the statement here in verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. So Paul is making, he's validating a point. He has been saying over and over again, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time to rehash this, but over and over again that the believer, when they put their faith in Christ, that they are crucified with Christ. That's their spirit, in their soul, that they are in a very real way crucified with Christ. And so then he makes this inevitable conclusion here in verse 8 that if that has happened, then the second is also true that we will also live with Him, referring to His resurrection. That if we have died with Him, then the inevitable result is that we will also live with Him. But here is the phrase I want to zero in on. The part of that sentence is that we will also. As we read that in the English translation of that, we, in a quick reading, would be probably apt or led to think that he's talking there about something that is going to happen in the future, but that is not yet a current reality. Do you see what I'm saying there? That we will. Here's a promise that's coming for the believer, but not one that is yet fulfilled. And what I want to show you is that's not what Paul is saying here. And the context clearly indicates that that is not the intent of Paul when he authored this. There's two ways to take that statement, at least two ways. Let me share what they are, and then I'll tell you the right way. You could take it chronologically, which is a reference to a future event not yet happened. In other words, that one day that we as believers, we're going to be resurrected in our physical body and go to Him and be with Him in glory. Now, that is certainly a truth, a great truth, but that's not the truth that Paul is writing about here. He's not talking about a chronological interpretation of this truth. There's the second way that you could take it, and that is a logical statement. Not a chronological statement, but a logical statement. Logical statement meaning this, that it is something that logically flows out of the truth of what he has just shared. That it is future in the sense of this happens first and then because that happens inevitably, this second thing also happens not happens at some time distant in the future, but just happens subsequent to the first thing that happened. And so what he's teaching us here, a truth that we certainly know that it is the death that comes first and then the resurrection. That's true with Jesus Christ. There was the death and that what followed that was the resurrection. And the point Paul is making here logically is that if you have been united with Christ, if you're a believer, then the inevitable logical conclusion related to the doctrine of our union with Christ is that if you have died with Him, you're going to also live with Him, not in the future 
hope of glory, but subsequent to the death, it is inevitable that you move into his resurrection just like you moved into his crucifixion. Now let me give you two context pieces that will validate and make that, I believe, really clear. The first one is the pretext, verse 1 of Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 opens up with this heresy, this misinterpretation and understanding that many who heard Paul preach the gospel arrived at this conclusion that said this, well, man, if it's all about grace and nothing about what we do, and in fact, if when sin increases, grace increases all the more, let's go on and sin so that we can actually kind of pave the way and help grace along. Man, as I do bad, wow, I'm going to actually be working with God, and grace is going to advance. And so Paul is here in Romans chapter 6, from verse 1 all the way up to verse 8 that we've come to, all the way up through verse 10 that we're going to finish with today. He is trying to refute that heresy, that ridiculous conclusion. And so he makes this statement to validate his goal, his goal of refuting that heresy. And he says, if you've died with Christ, you've also been risen with Christ. Now, if he was talking about a future event, not yet a reality, how would that validate and back up the truth that he is trying to emphasize here. How would this future event that has not yet happened help you to live in victory in the present? It wouldn't help you. So what he is saying here is that I am telling you about a reality that is already yours. Not a future hope, but a present day already guaranteed truth that if you have died with Christ, you have also been resurrected with Christ. That helps to substantiate and refute this heresy that we should keep on sinning. How could we if we have been resurrected with Christ? Here's the second context that would help to establish that he means the present day when he's talking about our resurrection. And it's a verse that follows in verse 11. In verse 11, Paul comes to a conclusion. He is bringing everything he said in verses 1 through 10 of Romans 6 to a grand conclusion. And in verse 11, he makes the statement that what we should do based upon the truth of those first 10 verses, that we should consider ourselves that we should realize, that we should understand deeply a truth about us. And what is the truth? That we're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Not dead to sin and will be one day alive to God in Christ. The whole emphasis, again, is to refute the heresy. And so he is teaching here about a present reality for the believer. He is telling you and me, if we're followers of Christ, if we've truly been saved, that 
we have been crucified with Christ and that we have been raised to new life with Christ. Now, if that's an accurate understanding of the doctrine and of this verse, then what we can expect to find in the rest of the New Testament is similar truth or truth that is in perfect agreement with this, not in contrast to it. And it is everywhere. I'll give you just one really undeniable, explicitly verse that explicitly states this truth, and it's written by the same author from the Apostle Paul's pen, Ephesians 2. I'm going to read a little bit of verse 1 and some verses 4 and 5. Paul wrote there, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. That's your reality before you were saved. You were dead in trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy. Here's what happened at salvation. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Not will make us alive together with Christ, but that it is an accomplished reality. If you're saved, you're crucified with Christ, and you're alive with Christ. So in verse 8, what Paul is doing, he is just restating what he said in the last half of verse 5. He is setting forth again the great propositional truth that he made back in verse 5. What Paul is so diligently trying to do, so adamantly working at accomplishing is this. This is going to set up the stage for everything else that I want to say this morning. What Paul is so diligently trying to do is he is trying to get his hearers, he is trying to get the believers in Christ that are looking into his teaching to understand the doctrine of the believer's union with Christ and to embrace it fully and deeply as their living reality. He is driving that in over. That's what he's done from the beginning of this chapter, even back to uh, Romans 5.12 when he started talking about the first Adam and the last Adam, Christ. He has been pushing this thing over and over again into central focus so that we would embrace it, believe it, live based upon the truth of what he is saying here. In general terms, here is what the doctrine of the believer's union with Christ teaches. It teaches this, that what happened to Christ happened to you. It teaches this, that the results and ramifications of Christ's death and resurrection, if you're united to Him, are your results and the things that come to you as well, just like they came to Christ. And He wants us, He wants believers 
to so fully embrace that, to be grounded upon that truth. So here's the question. How does he do that? How does he do that? Here is the the plan of attack for Paul in verses 9 and 10. Here is how Paul is going to accomplish this intensely this goal that he has in mind that is absolutely so vital for the believer to understand. He is going to turn his spotlight on Jesus Christ and off of the believer. He is going to, in verses 9 and 10, not talk about the believer at all. The believer is completely set aside and All of the light is focused on Jesus Christ and Him exclusively. And what He's going to do in this description is He is going to show us what is true about Christ's crucifixion and Christ's resurrection. Because if we will understand that, then what we can do is understand that the same thing that was true of him is true of us because we were united to him in salvation. And so he turns this spotlight onto the person of Christ and takes it off of you as the believer. Let me try to even make that more poignant or clearer. He doesn't look at your experience at all. This is not a subjective issue. This is not truth that is validated by or based upon what you see when you look in the mirror, what you see when you watch your life. That's subjective. That's experiential truth. That is not the truth that he is talking about here. He is taking the spotlight completely off of us, putting it completely on Jesus Christ and saying, I want you to look at the historical man, Jesus Christ, and at the historical events that happened 2,000 years ago on a hill outside of Jerusalem where he was crucified and in a tomb where he is laid and based upon those facts of history, objective reality, then that is what I want you to build your truth about your union with Christ on. Not about what you feel. Not about how you are acting in the day-to-day but on who he is and what he did and what happened to him. That's what he does in verses 9 and 10. This is so critical for us to understand. See, Paul's goal is holiness in the life of the believer. Sanctification 
the growing of the Christian into more and more Christ-likeness, that is his goal. Let me say that another way. Victory over sin in the day-to-day is what Paul is after. Now, doesn't that context make sense? Romans chapter 6, verse 1. People saying, hey, let's go out and sin and increase grace. And so he begins this incredible, profound, logical, deep development of truth about the believer's union with Christ so that he can bring the believer to the point where he says, look, no, you should not sin. No, you don't have to sin. Yes, you can live in victory. And the way that he does that is to talk about who Jesus is, what happened to Jesus Christ, and the truth about him. Because when you were saved, a miracle took place in your life. The Holy Spirit of God united you to Jesus Christ. In your soul and in your spirit, so perfectly united you to Christ that the results of his crucifixion are yours. And the results of his resurrection are yours, just like they were his. So with that holiness as a goal, let's look at what he said about Jesus Christ. Let's look at this spotlight turned exclusively on Jesus and see what he said about Jesus' death and about Jesus' life in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, Paul says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Two phrases here about Jesus Christ. I want to focus in on, look closely at. The first one is that he'll never die again. The second one is death no longer has dominion. Jesus Christ will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Credible truth here. Now, as you look at this verse, this is the English Standard Version. I love the way that this is worded. I think it does a very accurate job of helping us see the truth that Paul intended here. He makes this great statement here at the end that, that, that Christ will never die again. But before he makes that statement, there is a clause in here. There is a phrase that sets up the truth. It is really as if, and hopefully this will be obviously obvious when I point it out, that's a logical progression here. That what sets up the truth that Christ will never die again is this, that he was raised from the dead. So that it could be said like this, because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the Father, then the result is, the conclusion, what you can take to the bank is this, that he's never going to die again. Do you see that progression there? 
It's the clause in the middle that sets up the truth at the end of that statement. And what I think is here, I talked a little bit about this last week. I want to make the point again very strongly here, and that is this, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the undeniable proof that the Father has fully accepted the Son's sacrifice for sin. Do you want to know if what Jesus did really was able to pay for all the sins of humanity? Was his death really sufficient to meet the full justice and righteousness of God for all of the sins from the sin in the Garden of Eden, the first sin all the way to the future sin, the last sin at the end of human history? Did his death really pay the price fully for all of those sins? And the answer is, go look at the open tomb. There's an exclamation point there, and it says this, the Father has accepted the sacrifice of the Son. Here's why. Please follow me here. This is profound truth. I'm not profound. The Word of God is, but it's profound truth if I can stay out of the way and make it clear to your minds. What is the power of sin? Here's what the New Testament says. That the power of sin is the law. That it's the law of God that gives sin its power. And then what is the sting of sin? What's the, what's the problem or the, the result that sin brings about as it uses the power of the law to accomplish its result? And it's this, it's death. That the sting of sin is death. So here's what you've got. See this combination. It's the law of God that gives power to sin. And the reason that works is because when you sin, because you sin, you come under the law of God. And the law of God then is in judgment upon you. And the judgment of the righteous law of God is that sin brings death. And so the death sentence by the just law of God is passed upon the sinner. So the power of sin is the law. And then sin uses that power to bring about death. And so for all of human history in this world, sin reigns in death. Does that logical progression make sense? Okay, so... Here's what Paul is getting at here. That Jesus Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death will never have power over him again. Why? Because Jesus fully met the requirements of the law of God. He fully satisfied the law of God. The law has absolutely nothing over on Jesus Christ. I don't mean for himself. Jesus Christ had no sin over and over. We've talked about that. Jesus never sinned in himself. 
Jesus was perfect and spotless and without blemish. But when he died for our sins, he so perfectly satisfied all of the debt that sin required by the just law of God so that when that debt was paid in full, sin lost its power because the power of sin is the what? Say that again. The power of sin is the what? It's the law. And the law was met by Jesus Christ, fully satisfied by Jesus Christ, so that the Father then, now that the law is fully satisfied for all humanity, He could call His Son back up out of the grave to new life into a brand new existence, no longer under that temporary dominion of sin that He had placed Himself under, so that the resurrection of Christ is the undeniable proof the undeniable proof that Jesus Christ will never die again. He has defeated sin. The law has nothing that it can hold over him. That the greatest power of sin, the end result, the great drastic result is death, and he defeated death by coming back alive proving that the law was fully satisfied and he can never die again. Now remember, 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 he's teaching you this about Christ. He's spotlighting Christ so that he can teach you something about you. If you're a believer, that's his point. He is talking only and exclusively about Christ, but his goal is that you get it for you if you're a believer, is that you would embrace it for you if you're a follower of Christ and have been saved. That he's showing what's true of Christ, but what he's talking about is what's true of you. And so he says, Jesus can never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Jesus, for a period of time, he left this eternal abode in glory, majesty, and he willingly subjected himself and stepped down into a new realm and into a new relationship with sin that he had never been in in an eternity past. And for a period of time, he lived in the realm where sin ruled and reigned in death, and he submitted himself under that dominion. But when he died and he fully satisfied the law and he broke the power of sin and its number one enemy death and the number one enemy of death, he, he ended that relationship that he had had to sin for that little period of time in his eternal existence. He came out from under the dominion of sin so that it has no longer any power over him. Verse 10, what Paul does here now in verse 10, sometimes I, I know this is so redundant, but Paul is so redundant here. Incredible truth, though, is good to hear 
every way that we can. Why? So we can grasp it. Remember, that's what he wants you to do is understand it deeply. So what he does here in 10 is he says the same thing again. And he says it even more clearly and more powerfully in verse 10. For the death Jesus died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. One of the great Bible scholars, uh, expositors of history from generations past, says that he believes this is one of, if not the most misinterpreted and therefore misused verses in all of Scripture. And it has to do with one little bitty In the ESV, it is written like this. For the death he died, he died to sin. That he died to sin. Maybe yours says unto sin, that he died unto sin. Both of those meaning the same thing. But to make it really clear, let me tell you what it does not say. It doesn't say that the death Jesus died, he died for sin. He died to or unto sin. Stated here in verse 10, not he died for sin. There is such radical difference. A change of meaning when you change that little word. Now, folks, it is true stated many times in Scripture, many times by Paul, that Jesus Christ did die for sin. That is a clear truth of Scripture, but that is not what Paul is talking about here. Paul said here that he died to or unto sin. So let me try to highlight that, what this phrase means. It means this, that Jesus Christ died unto the power of sin. It's the same truth that he has been stating over and over and over again. The context here, to be consistent, this is the only logical reasonable understanding of the phrase that he gives here is that he is talking about this death that Jesus died, taking him out of this temporary place that he entered into in which sin ruled and sin reigned, this relationship that he put himself to under the law in the realm where sin had dominion, that when he died, that he ended that relationship once and forever. He came out of that situation. If you interpret it that he died for sin, he all of a sudden, in the midst of this continual, consistent development, just completely changes his theme and then goes right back to it in the next verse. 
So clearly what he's talking about here is that Jesus died to or unto sin, meaning that he died under the power of sin, unto the dominion of sin, that it's no longer a reality in his life. And he emphasizes that in the next phrase. He says this, that he died to sin and that he gives you an exposition on what that means. Once for all. Once for all. Some of your translations uh, may say that he died to sin once. That's unfortunate because it misses, it hints at, but it really misses the strength of the truth that Paul is trying to make here. And the words that he uses here in his letter in the Greek is this, that when he said once and for all, it means he died to sin once and only once. That it was a one-time death never to be repeated again. Context, previous verse. Didn't he just say that in the previous verse? He is reiterating and reemphasizing the truth that he has just made. And he's saying when Jesus died to sin, he died to it once and he died to it only once. And he's never going to die to it again. It's going to be his eternal reality that he's outside of that realm, living in a brand new relationship, an eternal relationship to sin. No longer will he ever enter where he was before and be subjected to sin's power. Remember, 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 he's not just doing this to tell you about Christ. In fact, his primary purpose is to tell you about you. That what is true of Christ, if you are united to him, is true of you. Paul makes this, and not Paul, the writer of Hebrews makes this point so clear and profound in Hebrews chapters 7 through 10. In those chapters, the writer of Hebrews sets up a comparison and he talks about how Jesus Christ as the capital letters, high priest over all humanity, high priest for all of God's people, is very different than the Jewish high priests, the Jews who served at the temple and performed their function of offering sacrifices day after day, year after year, perpetually, continually offering sacrifices. And why did they have to keep doing it again? They were guilty of their own sin and their sacrifices never really cleansed the nation of Israel from sin. It was really meant to teach them their need of a Savior. But Jesus Christ, our high priest, is radically different than that. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27. Remember the idea here, the idea of Jesus dying once for all, once and never again. For it was indeed fitting that we should 
have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this, here it comes, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Same word, same idea, Hebrews 10, 12. But when Christ had offered, here it is, for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. One-time sacrifice sufficient for all sins of all time for all of humanity. How effective was that sacrifice? Was it able to actually do what it was intended to do? Hebrews 10, 14. Oh, man, this is a great truth right here. For by a single offering, He, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Did you catch that? That by His one sacrifice, Jesus Christ perfected how much how long, how thoroughly, for all time, those who are still in the process, having now been saved but not yet ascended to glory, who are still being sanctified, who are still growing in their habits and attitudes and actions, but the fact that they are still growing and have not yet arrived does not negate the fact that Jesus, by His one sacrifice, has perfected them for all time. Oh, that is phenomenal truth right there. You want to shore up your conviction that if you're saved, you're going to go on until the end? Right here it is. That you are perfected for all time. Not for a part of the time. Not for some of the time, but for all time and beyond time throughout all of eternity because His sacrifice was fully sufficient to cover your sins past, your sins present, your sins future, and those of all of humanity so that He's not a high priest that has to repeat this thing over and over again. No, He's the high priest who did it once who will never do it again, who will never die again. He doesn't need to because the price has already been paid. Permanently, fully, forever. That's the truth that Paul is driving at here. And then he says that the life he lives, he lives to God. That could be easily misunderstood and is, I believe, misunderstood by many by interpreting it like this. That what it's saying there is that now that Jesus has resurrected, he now lives in obedience to the Father. That is not what that is saying. That the life he lives, he lives to God, is not some statement that now that he has come outside of his this sinful dominion and is living now in a new existence, resurrected, that now he's living in obedience. And the reason that's not true is because that's always been true of Jesus. 
He always lived in perfect obedience and unity with the Father for eternity past. And then he stepped down into our world, and for 33 years he lived in this new realm under the dominion and reign of sin. But when he lived there, he still didn't sin. He lived in perfect obedience to the Father fully and completely. Every thought, every action, every deed. This is not a statement here about activity. This is a statement about a living condition, a reality of existence. It's simply saying what he's been saying over and over again, that Jesus Christ is now exalted and lifted out of and taken out of this realm that he was in for just a short period of time. And he is living in the relationship that he always had with the Father for an eternity past. He is back in glory. He is back in his exalted position. He is over and above the law. Never can sin touch him. Never can death harm him. No dominion can ever be exerted over him because he has all dominion. And again, folks, what Paul is after is that he would drive the truth in our hearts deeply and in our minds fully to understand through the doctrine of our union with Christ that what is true of his death is true of us right now. That what is true of his resurrection is true of us right now. Yes, we are going to be resurrected in our physical body one day. When Jesus returns, we're going to be transformed and this physical body of immortality that's perishable is going to put on the imperishable and we're going to get a new glorified body. But that does not negate the fact that right in the here and now, that just like Jesus Christ died to sin and can never die again, that if you're a believer, you have died to sin and you can never die to sin again. It's true of Christ. Therefore, the logical conclusion Paul is making is it's true of you. And because Jesus Christ has been resurrected from the dead, from de from the death and he has been exalted and taken out of that dominion of sin that never again will he be in that that's true of Christ's resurrection it's true of you that's your reality so Paul's entire emphasis here in turning this spotlight upon the Lord Jesus Christ, taking the spotlight off of the believer and putting it only upon Christ and the historical objective facts of history. He is saying to us that what you can do, believer, is trust God and take him at his word. Don't believe what you see when you look in the mirror. Don't believe what your personal experience, your subjective reality teaches you about your inability to say no to sin. Don't believe it. It's a lie. 
Here's what you do need to believe. Here's the truth that you do need to embrace. That what is true of Christ's death is true of you. And what is true of Christ's resurrection is true of you. Why? What's the goal? So that you can live in victory over sin. So here's the connection. The only way that holiness can be true in your life is that you have to embrace the truth of the doctrine of your union with Christ. Because if you don't embrace that, everything about your life is going to tell you it's impossible. Everything about your day-to-day actions and how you are in this battle with sin is going to tell you there is no way that you can live in victory. And you'll believe it if you're reasoning it out in your own mind. The only thing that will open the door for you to walk in victory is if you take God at His word based upon the objective historical facts of history related to Jesus Christ and say, I believe this is true of me. This is who I am. This is what has been done for me so that you can say, I'm not going down here. I'm fighting this because I know I'm not fighting it in my own power. I'm fighting it in the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Holiness is the goal. Victory over sin has been the goal. From Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Close with this. And this is where we're going to go next week. It is so striking. Never seen this before. It is so striking that in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, is the first time in the entire letter. I encourage you to look this up for yourself. It's the first time in all of those five and a half chapters that Paul has said anything about application of truth. For five and a half chapters, it's been doctrine, 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 doctrine. He has waded through the depths of the doctrine of the human condition before Christ and the doctrine of who Christ is and what he did to provide redemption so that he could come to this great doctrine of the believer's oneness in Christ when they put their faith in him and are baptized into him so that he could get to Romans 6, 11. His goal from the get-go is to get to Romans 6, 11 and say, okay now, based upon all of that doctrine that we have hammered out, now, here's the truth, you got to start living it. And you can if you understand the doctrine. How critical is it that you understand the doctrine? It's so critical that the great apostle thought it was necessary to take five and a half chapters of straight doctrine before he ever said anything to you about application. It's the learning that enables the living. 
Here's the way Jesus said it. You will know the truth, and the truth will do what? It will set you free. The negative side that you could say with just as much conviction is if you don't know the truth, it won't set you free. But if you know the truth about who you are in Christ, about what happened to you through being united with Christ's crucifixion and about what happened to you through being united to Christ's resurrection, if you know that truth, oh, it's going to set you up to walk, not in defeat, but in growing and increasing victory. Worship team, would you come? We're going to end this service with communion. Really great connection here is just looking at the elements that represent the crucifixion of Christ and our identification. We take in communion to teach us a tool, is a training tool. It's not anything in the bread and the juice that infuses the grace of God. That's the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church, not of Orthodox Christianity. That it's a symbol that is just meant to teach us the truth that Jesus Christ has fully and forever paid the penalty for sin. But folks, he didn't just pay its penalty. He broke its power. That's the lesson here. Sin has not just been paid in full. Its power has been broken for you if you're a believer. So let's rejoice in that. Ushers, you come. We'll sing a song here. You take the bread and the juice, reflecting upon, if you're a believer, what Christ has done for you and the victory he's won.